Well, this morning we're going to start just what uh, is a, intend, in, envisioned to be a four-week series that will culminate on Easter. Easter is only four Sundays away from today, if you can imagine how quickly it comes. Uh, but over the years that I've had the privilege of serving here as pastor, we've looked at different aspects of Resurrection Sunday and the time that leads up to that pivotal day in history. You know, a lot of people get excited about Christmas, and I like Christmas, okay, but I really get excited about Easter because that really is the day that made forgiveness possible for us. And I just really enjoy that season, not what he had to do for us, but but what was done on our behalf. And our theme this year is real simple. He is. And over four weeks, we're going to look at four things. He is what? Today, I want to talk with you about he is the lamb. Real simple. Uh, As we begin to look at the event where Jesus transformed the meaning of Passover, and remember the Lord's Supper and ultimately what Christ did on the cross was foreshadowed in the Passover event from back in Egypt, he turns what they knew all of their lives as the Passover into what you and I know as Lord's Table or Lord's Supper, or maybe you use the word communion uh, as your descriptor for that. But ever since those days of living in Egypt, the people of God have, for the most part, every year would observe Passover, this event that reminded them of God's deliverance from Egypt. If you remember the story, just briefly, what happened is God's people had moved down to Egypt to stay alive, and after about 400 years, God said, it's time to come home, and sent Moses to bring them out, and the Pharaoh said, ain't going to happen. And he kept saying no again and again and again. And finally, on the last request, when he said no, God said, here's what we're going to do. And he told the people to take a lamb without blemish, to kill it, that sounds kind of gruesome to some of us, and to take the blood and paint it on the doorposts of their home as a marker. A marker for two things. One, that this home was a family of God. And the other is that they believed that God would deliver them. There was two things that really happened in that moment. And out of that event comes what they did every year. It's called Passover. Now, you know, you and I, we have Lord's Supper, and sometimes we take the Lord's Supper, and it takes us, what, five minutes. A really long service might take seven. A Passover service is typically about four hours long. And they go through all the different parts of the process of the different elements and the different sacrifices and the different this and the different reminders of what God's done. And it's a long involved process that involves family and friends coming together to be reminded of God's deliverance by the blood of a lamb back in Egypt. As Jesus arrived at Jerusalem for the very last time on earth as human form, he intended to Uh, observe the Passover. And when he was headed that way, we don't really know how it happened, but he worked out the details where they would be able to do this because he was going to transform the meaning of Passover from being that God can deliver us from sinful rulers and sinful life and sinful mess in Egypt to God delivering us from what? From sin and giving us new life. And he wants his followers, you and me, to understand it's through the blood of the Lamb that we are delivered. And Jesus makes himself to be and shows himself to be the Lamb. So we're going to pick up in Luke chapter um, 22, I believe it is, uh, on verse 7 and go from there. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover Lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Hey, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may may eat it. And they said to him, Where? 
Where do we go? Where will you have us prepare it? And he said, Behold, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. And tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So let me set the scene for you. Jesus and his disciples have made their way to Jerusalem for the last time. They traveled from the Galilee, where most of his ministry went on, and traveled down the Jordan River to a town called Jericho. You may remember his encounter there with a little guy, a wee little man. A wee little man was he, a guy named Zacchaeus. You remember that story? And from there they traveled up, because it was literally geographically up, to Jerusalem from that way. And they come into the city into the area around the city. And the fame of Jesus has risen. People have heard about him. He has been in Jerusalem off and on for the last three years. He has taught in that region. His word, the word of him has spread. People have heard of his amazing miracles, the way he's fed thousands of people, the things he's done and the the, the accomplishments he's had. And some people, very supportive of him. Some people, inquisitive. They don't know for sure. Some, receptive. Some were combative. They didn't like him. Some were downright bitter. But Jesus evoked a response in all of them. And as they arrived in Jerusalem, they had a need. What was the need? Where are we going to go to have the Passover? You're probably thinking, well, why didn't you go down to the La Quinta? It didn't exist. They also didn't have homes in Jerusalem. They weren't from there. This wasn't their hometown. So they had to locate a place. There apparently was a cottage industry of people who would open up their roof your roof, uh, the rooftops to have Passover events. And they would prepare their homes for groups that would come into the city of Jerusalem at Passover to have a place to go do that. Middle Eastern homes tended to have flat roofs and they would go up on the roof and prepare a place up there. You're going, well, wouldn't they get wet? <laughs> Not in the Middle East. There's a couple of weeks a year where you get rain and the rest of it, it's always dry. And they would have that place for them. But understand this ritual that took place every year, every single year it was done exactly the same. The person who ever led it would say the same words, would read the same scriptures, would share the same stories, would do the same events, same activities again and again. These men had no place to go for it. But Jesus had it worked out. Now, we don't know if he had arranged it when he was there a previous visit with somebody for that place or if it was a supernatural event. I tend to lean toward the second because when you look at the passage, what you find is that they were to find a man carrying a jar of water. You're going, so what, Patrick? Men carry jars of water all the time. Not in that culture. The word that's used to translate a jar of water is a word that is typically associated with the activity of women. But he walks into the city and they look up and they see a man carrying this jar. And they're supposed to follow him. Now, you got to think, that would have been kind of weird for that guy. All of a sudden, these two guys start tailing him through town, right? But they're headed toward their house and they get to this place. And John sent Peter and John, Jesus sent Peter and John to head to get things ready. And they find the man with the water and they go to the room and they get it ready. And they would have to get this space prepared. Now, what does that mean? They would go up to the flat roof and they would have all of the things needed for Passover. For us, Passover is, or excuse me, Lord's Supper is two activity, two, two elements. We have a wafer of some kind, right? And we have juice. That's it. For them, they would have unleavened bread, which is like our bread. But they would also have herbs. 
that would remind them of God's bitter, the bitterness of having to leave and escape. They would have fruits to remind them of what God has provided. They would have wine, which symbolizes the God's blessing. He's taking them to a new land. And they would have this lamb. Now, you have to imagine there was a cottage industry also for having lambs. You didn't just typically travel to Jerusalem with your lamb in tow. So they would come to Jerusalem and they would buy a lamb. They would get a unblemished lamb and they would slaughter it and prepare it so they could have the, the Passover event. And what God was doing with them is he says, I'm going to show you through this Passover event something that you could do in your sleep because you've done it every single year of your life that there's something new coming. He says, I'm going to show you who the lamb really is. He wants to take them from their past, from their traditions, and take them to the future, to what God has for all of us, which is that deliverance he's promising. So we have the preparation for Passover. We also have the participation in the Passover. Look at verse 14. And the hour came, he, Jesus, reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat the pass- this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Now, as their appointed time comes, they gather. You go, well, of course they did. They had to observe it. Well, you have to remember, they were borrowing the space. It was a, a window of time they would have to do this. And Jesus comes into this moment, and I want you to see he does two things in this moment that he is participating in that's going to read forward into what we call Lord's Supper, but him serving as the Lamb. He talks about the immediate, but he also talks about the future. I don't know about you, but I, I live my life in the immediate But I often live my life, what? Thinking about the future. What's going to come next? In the immediate context here, what he is talking about is that the God of the Bible has delivered his people. You're going, yeah, that's what Passover is. We get it. I want you to grasp that. He, he says, he says, I want you to understand that what we're doing here is reminding us of God's deliverance from the bondage of Egypt. He took us out of slavery. He took us out of this captivity that we really didn't intend to get into, but we found ourselves in anyway. I don't know if you find yourself in that sometimes in life, but there's an allusion there to our lives. But God didn't want his creation to remain there. He wanted them to find deliverance. He wanted them to find freedom. He says, this is our reminder. In this moment, we're reminded of what God's done. We're reminded of what God can do with this. And so he calls them to eat the Passover before he suffers for the sin of the world. He goes, I want you to understand, this time is special. This moment is special because what's about to happen to me is for you. My love is going to show you that. He wants them to understand that God not only delivered the people back then in Egypt, but he was going to deliver people when? That week with his act, with his work. He still does that today, by the way. They've been told numerous times that Jesus was going to die. They didn't believe it. They didn't get it. How can you die? You're the leader of our band. You're the leader of our political movement. You're the leader who's going to give us a new country with new leaders, and it's all going to be great. They didn't get it yet. He says, in this moment, I'm going to die. 
in this moment. But there's also a future reference here. Uh, the scripture says this, For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. That's the last verse in that section we just read. He's not just talking about here at Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. He's not just talking about what's about to happen to him, but he wants them as best they can at this moment, and I'm not sure they fully got it until after the crucifixion, but he wants them to understand that there's coming a day when it's all going to come to a close. He wants them to understand there's coming a day when the grand banquet's coming, the end of time, when God's going to clear it all out, and only those who know him will be at the table. He says, I've got a plan for the future. He's going to bring history to a close. He's going to bring time to a close. And this gathering of God's people will happen at the end of time. And only those who have said, yes, God, I trust you, will be at the table. See, Jesus worked that day. He talks not just about here, but out there as well. And speaks to the future. And takes the Passover and transforms it. And then he makes the point of the Passover. Look at verse 19. We sometimes read this passage when we have Lord's Supper. I thought about us going and having Lord's Supper today, but we just had it a couple of weeks ago, and we'll have it in a few weeks. And I said, well, every couple of weeks is probably too often. But, but I want you to see this. Verse 19 says this. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And behold the hand of him who betrays me is on the table. Jesus speaks of a certainty that I want you to grasp, that it's important. It's a phrase in this text that I don't know if you've ever really noticed. It's one I never really grasped significantly until I was preparing for this week. I was looking through that and I'm going... Oh my goodness. You're going, what phrase would that be? It's this one. Which is given for who? For you. It's easy to gloss over phrases like that. You go, well, Jesus' name isn't even in the sentence. I mean, God's not talked about that. But, but God's there in the moment. I want you to stop and think about what is God is saying in that phrase. I must have forgotten to put it on the screen for you this week. I'm sorry. But he, 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 he's taking what was an ancient ritual. Remember, these men had observed Passover literally every single year of their lives. It had always been exactly the same every time they observed it. There was like a script they always read from that usually it was the oldest male in the family that they would have that. The extended family would come together. They would go through that service together and they would be reminded of what God had done for his people to deliver them from captivity. And they had heard this. He's taking this ancient ritual and going to give it a whole new meaning. And it's wrapped up in that phrase which is given for you. He's telling them the point of the Passover all along had not been just merely about deliverance. It had been more than that. It had been more than just mere deliverance. It had been about God's deliverance, God moving in the lives of his people, delivering them from bondage and slavery and all those things that his body, Jesus says, my body will be broken for you. My blood will be shed for you. And my life will be available to you. He says, I want to give you new life. He says, this is what's happening here. 
It's changing. Now at the table, there were 11 men who mostly got it and one who probably didn't get it at all of the 12 that were there. But in this moment, Jesus makes it clear there would be his body broken, his blood shed. Why? Because of our sinfulness. And his life would be given willingly so that we could receive total and complete forgiveness of sin. What a work he does for us. He established a new covenant. And I want you to see this. God forgave sinners before Christ died. God forgives sinners since Christ died. But God forgives sinners. Why? Because Christ died. Jesus radically changes the meaning of Passover, but retains the necessary sacrifice of the Lamb. He says, I am that sacrifice. And then he predicts that betrayal. For the Son of Man goes as has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it would be who was going to do this. At this point, Jesus kind of obtusively, not pointedly, calls out the betrayer. We all know his name. That's Judas. Do you realize that at the Lord's table institution, when he transformed Passover into the Lord's table, Judas was participating. Can you imagine? He looks over at him and says, it's going to happen. Here's a man who willingly allowed himself to be used by the enemy. He fulfilled scripture by selling Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. He set up the arrest according to the scriptures. And we need to understand, really as best we can, that God even uses those kind of situations, those kind of betrayals in his kingdom's work. You think, wow, surely there was another way. Surely it didn't have to be Judas betraying, did it? Somebody had to, to set up the moment. God can work through our suffering. He can work through the difficulties. He can bring about his plan however he wants. And God sets up the betrayal, the arrest, the trial, the sentence, and ultimately the crucifixion followed by resurrection because he wants to give us a new understanding. So what do we do with this? Three three quick things. We might even finish early today. I ran over last week, so I'll trade you some time. All right. Number one, so what? Here, I want you to hear this from this passage. God's heart is what? For deliverance. So I don't need deliverance. My friends, every single one of us needs God's deliverance. Every one of us. You say, well, well, but you're a pastor. You don't need it. Oh, I needed it. Seven-year-old boy, I needed it. You say, I don't need it. You need it. Why? Because all of us have sinned and come short of God's glory. All of us are failed in one way or another. From the very beginning, God created you and me for fellowship and to worship Him. You were created to be in His presence. The problem is our sin has separated us from God, as the Scriptures tell us. It's created a problem. And while the choice to sin was made by our first parents, and every single one of us has a propensity to sin, we've also been provided with the way to be delivered. You're not stuck in sin. You go, well, I can't get out. Well, I'll give you that because you can't get out. But God can deliver you if you'll let him. Whether we understand it or not, accept it or not, even fully understand it or not, we're born in sin. We're born with blinders. We're born, we can't see. We don't understand. We, we, we don't really get the idea of given for us. That phrase is so powerful. He's given for us. In fact, we might want to make it more personal if y'all want to this morning and say, He was given for me. Jesus was given for me. 
to give me forgiveness, to give me deliverance. Forgiveness is made possible as he was given for us. A great life in the here and now is possible because he was given for us. And we, we, we need to understand and take deeply in our souls the truth that when we trust Christ, when we trust him as our Savior, he delivers us and everything changes. We're not what we used to be. We're not what we need to become, but we're not what we were. He's transforming us and changing us. As Colossians, the writer of Colossians says, he's delivered us where? From the domain of darkness. And he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Let me tell you something. If you're here this morning, you've trusted Christ as Savior. You are no longer in the domain of darkness. You have been transferred. You've been relocated from that darkness to the kingdom of who? His beloved son. You can boldly stand today and say, I am a child of God. I'm his follower. And, in, and because that's who we have our redemption, that's who we have our forgiveness of sin is in him. He says, I want to deliver you. In Christ, we have deliverance. Do you have that today? Second, God's plan then is for what? Faithfulness. He wants us to be faithful. You're going, well, but I'm kind of a mess. Yeah, me too. But God's not. God's faithful. I want you to see this. God God is actually modeling for us through Christ's life and through his work the faithfulness that he has for us. When we were dead in sin and trespasses, what happened? He understood and faithfully stood in the gap. He said, I'm going to make not a way, but the way possible for us to come to know God. When God's people were in captivity in Egypt, he did what? I made the way for you to be delivered with his faithfulness. When Jesus was sent by God, he faithfully made the way for you and me to be redeemed. How? By his faithfulness. But all of this is based on God's faithfulness. When others fail, guess who's faithful? God is. When others waver, guess who's faithful? God is. When we can't figure it out, guess who's faithful? Y'all got it? God is. He's always there. And Paul wrote to the church at uh, Corinth about this. Now, the church at Corinth was a group of people who really struggled with faithfulness. They really had some, some messes. If you read 1st, 2nd Corinthians, you kind of go, oh my goodness, I'm glad I didn't go to their church. They had some crazy stuff going on. But because of their faithlessness, they would, they would begin to think, well, we're not that faithful. I bet God's not that faithful either. Paul wrote them and says, uh-uh, you need to hear this. God is what? Say it with me. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He calls you and me into a relationship with him, a fellowship with him. He says, I'm faithful. I'm going to stand right here. We need to understand that when everybody else in the world fails us, guess who will never fail us? God. He won't walk away. He won't leave you. He won't forsake you. He stays. He stands in the gap every time. He loves us regardless of what we've done. He loves us regardless of what we haven't done. He loves us. Oh, how he loves us completely. And then third, God has a destination for us. It's eternity. You can say, well, all of humanity is going into eternity, and you'd be absolutely right. If I really want to be accurate, this statement should say God's destination for us is heavenly eternity. But I hope you understand the point here. God wants all of his people to come to, all people to come to know him. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He doesn't want anyone to die and be separated from eternally. Did you know that? 
You say, well, God doesn't love them. You think God loves a, a, we always go to, why don't we go to the worst characters we can think of? He loves a Hitler. He loves a Saddam Hussein. He hates, he loves us. Yes, he does. You know why? Because, well, he can love them. I bet he can love me. No, I want you to understand, he loves them the same as he loves you. Doesn't mean they know him, but he loves them. And he stands with an offer for who? For everyone to say, I want to follow. And that's made possible because Jesus is what? The Lamb. Remember when John was baptizing in the wilderness and Jesus went to him to be baptized, which is a whole other conversation for a whole other day. But do you remember what John said when he saw him coming? He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John knew it at the beginning of the ministry. Jesus illustrated it in transforming Passover. He stands for everyone to have life. All people to experience the shed blood and broken body of Jesus. And when that moment of transformation happens, then you get to stand with the saints and say this verse. He says, but our citizenship is where? In heaven. You realize you may be an American still, but your ultimate citizenship is heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our mess. You ready? Transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even, that, that enables him even to subject all things to himself. I don't know about you, but I'm waiting, aren't you? waiting for him to come and to transform us. See, the point of conversion when you trust Christ starts a process. You're no longer a sinner. You're now a saint. You're no longer in darkness. You're in light. You're no longer part of the enemy. You're part of God's kingdom. And it begins a process in our lives where we're transformed day by day by day to be more like him. I'd be lying if I stood here and told you I've arrived. You all know me enough to know that he ain't arrived. But then again, neither of you. But hopefully the process is working in you and changing you and the life that we have is being transformed and he comes someday to take us home. The beginning point is this. Have you trusted Christ? Have you come to that place where you said, God, I trust you? That's where it starts. So as we begin our time with this Easter season coming up, I want to remind you clearly, Jesus is the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world and gives us the opportunity to have new life. That's where it begins. Father God, we thank you so much for allowing us to be in your house today, to worship you, to sing praises to you, to be reminded of your work in our lives. God, I pray for those who maybe need to make some type of decision this morning. We're going to trust you with their lives. We're going to trust you with their timing. We thank you, God, for working and never giving up on us. We pray your blessing on this time in Jesus' name.